Hey, y'all. Welcome to episode 294 of the podcast with my boy of summer, Jonathan Ames. What a great time I had uh, having this conversation. It really was just went all over the place in a ways that I hoped that it might um, and just had a just had a great time. So I, I feel certain you'll enjoy this episode. I wanted to give Tyler a shout out from Holly's class. And uh, I think I might be behind on a couple of shout outs, but I got to get my myself organized and, and together. I'm uh, a little scattered. Uh, I guess that's my excuse every week. So nothing new there. I will uh, talk to you guys next time and hope everybody is doing wonderfully. Now entering Nerdist.com. that there's a lot to take in mm-hmm. my friend I'm now recording my uh, a friend of mine who I've known for many years came with her family and stayed here when I was out of town uh, and sh- her note to me was I I love all of your stuff I'm so glad you're a maximalist mm-hmm. and I immediately thought is am I insulted by that maybe but, that means I've th- maybe that maybe that's a kind way of saying there's a lot of clutter um, but I decided that I was going to take it as a compliment. Yeah, I I mean, I only glanced briefly when we walked in. And from this room, I, I don't see you as a clutter or anywhere on the hoarding spectrum. Okay, this, good. The this hoarding seems, spectrum. This, yeah, this seems like contained objects from life and uh-huh. books. I mean, I, I have hoarding tendencies. Do you really? Yeah. Because I went, I, I went to your house, but it was pretty early on in your move there. But you didn't. There, it, there was. It was pretty. Was yeah. it pre-furnished even? Well, no. I, 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 yeah. I have yeah, kept this house in Los Angeles somewhat uh, lean, but like in my office, uh, I, I don't intend it. But it's like I'm a bird making a nest. Uh-huh. Slowly, the papers rise, the detritus rise, uh-huh. and and it becomes uninhabitable. So certain areas take on this like uh like become like a coral reef Uh on their own (laughs) and but the area that you were in which was just sort of more of a living room yeah uh i've managed to keep streamlined but Mm -hmm. yeah no i wrote a piece about this um i had it really bad in new york in fact i when i moved to la four years ago I just sort of snuck out of my apartment like it was something out of science fiction that Mm -hmm. was letting go of me. I took two bags and I kept it for like almost two years. And then, you know, about a year ago, I had to give it up or three years I kept it. But I wrote the piece I wrote uh, in Philip K. Dick's Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Mm -hmm. I don't know if I've ever spoken to you about this. No, no. I'm just nodding because I know the uh, piece. Yeah. I mean, I I know that. Yeah. And it became Blade Runner. Right. What Blade Runner didn't capture, except maybe in one little moment, but in that universe was that let, i'm trying to look at your uh desk here um uh is that what is that white thing is that a thing of dental floss no it's oh. a it's eye but it's little earbuds that uh, apple makes but it, uh, every time i look at it i think it's floss okay so let's say that was a thing of a dental floss mm-hmm. and it was empty and mm-hmm. you got this plastic thing and if in this universe if you didn't throw it away immediately or recycle it 
uh, it would double overnight. Let's say you mm-hmm. have a lighter in your pocket, you take out, there's no more butane in yeah. it, you put it on your uh, dresser, you don't throw it away, it doubles. Or a parking ticket thing, right? Uh-huh. So, and what uh, Philip K. Dick called this was Kipple. And, and so the whole universe and that universe was moving towards a total and absolute state of kippleization wow. where the inessential was replacing the essential. Oh and that's what happens to me. It's not like I buy things. It's just basically the kipple starts rising up because I don't take care of it. Right. And, and it's mostly for me in the form of papers and books and an odd just these odd things that attach ourselves, t- attach themselves to us. Anyway, that's a, that's a, I, you sort of make sense that that would be absent from Blade Runner because it's one of those things that really makes sense in a book, but right. becomes very difficult to wrap your head around. It just <laughs> you know, cinematically, it's like, well, how do I? How do I explain what this I, is? I thought maybe I know it might be you know the little. Um, paper animals yeah. that the guy yeah. makes that even those detective. are sort of nice yeah those could be a form of kipple someone gives yeah. that to you you know just as a little yes, gift and absolutely you're never gonna play with it again but yeah. it just stays on your bureau yeah and then suddenly you know in that universe there'd be eight of those so yeah I thought that might be i've not ever discussed this with anyone and i wonder if anyone ever has so this podcast could be breaking ground seminal, on yeah the blade runner kipple to androids dream of electric sheep did kipple find its way yeah in there now we might have gotten some sense of it i think like you know, when he goes to that the building, which is the building here in L.A., mm-hmm. what's that famous the building? Bradbury. It's the Bradbury. It's Bradbury, and I, I am I, always, Ray Bradbury is my favorite author, so oh, I always sort oh, of think, okay. like, I wish it had something to do with him. It doesn't. I know, and then, great, and then it was in a science, and, and we, we yeah. used that in my show, yeah. Blunt Talk, yeah. which was beautiful it's to film in. It's a stunning building. But the way that building sort of looked, in the film mm-hmm. indicated perhaps a place that had become kippalized yes. because when places become kippalized in that universe they're no longer functional yeah that's great so, god yeah mm. i that's that's a great mm. concept it feels like a, such mm. a dense concept but yet such a simple concept that somehow the whole story would have to become about that if you were if you were mm. going to incorporate it into mm. filmmaking but then mm. it's also mm. like well where do we yeah, it's such yeah, a it's a dense concept, yeah. but it's also sort of like well, the, but then but then what? Yeah, someone would have to explain it. it anyway, Blade Runner was so dissimilar to the mo- the book, yeah. really. Well, that's kind of true. <laughs> if, don't you feel like Philip K. Dick is sort of the grandfather of here's this short, high concept idea that mm-hmm. then gets pulled and turned into something vastly different from the source material. Yes, because all his characters are kind of somewhat comedic and bit. Yeah. Uh, well, some people say uh, he's. I mean, I'm not saying this. Uh, I I did not. I, uh, I was such a Bradbury uh, snob. It's so uh, stupid. Uh, but uh, I, but I didn't read a lot of it. But but some people say that his writing is not like his concepts aren't are are great, and his writing doesn't necessarily uh, meet the standard of the concept. Does that make I, sense? I I I think that could be true. I didn't love his prose. Yeah. You know, um, I've read a number of his books, but sometimes. I, I don't know, because the, the the writing is just sort of, I, I don't know, somehow not distinctive, hmm. though the ideas yeah. are distinctive. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, um, but 
I I haven't read Ray Bradbury since I was a kid. What do you recommend? I mean, obviously oh, God, Fahrenheit so 451 or, or Yeah, is, or I just started I just started re-listening to uh I've become such an audiobook person because yeah, just for liking to have something in my ears and mm-hmm. also being mm-hmm. a person who likes to be busy um mm-hmm. uh with my hands, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um but I just started re-listening to oh, I've never listened to it before. I've read it many times, but I'm listening to um uh, something wicked this way comes, which is just a short book. I mean, it's mm-hmm. people sort of mm-hmm. think of it as like, oh, it's a Halloween story, but it's mm-hmm. it's just stunning. I mean, mm-hmm. he's very Dylan Thomasian mm-hmm. in that he. One of the things that I've always loved about him is that he just has that kind of whimsy with words, where he'll sort of turn a noun into a verb and a verb into a noun. And you know what I mean? He plays with that. Um, and adjectives become nouns. It, it's it, it's really, it, and, and it, there's a lightness to that that feels, I'm sure it's not as kind of, you know, effortless as it seems. But, um, and, and then he's just deeply sentimental and deeply optimistic, you know, even though people think of him as this horror story, you know, like, oh, amazing stories, all these kind of crazy, you know, Mars, all that kind of stuff. Uh, underneath it all is just this kind of profound hope, you know, like mm. we sort of think of many science fiction authors, I guess, mm. but mm. Um, I just think he's lovely. Mm. All right. Well, that's good. I'm yeah. always need, I'm always looking for writers to read, of course, and veins of writers where there's a lot of books, you know, to hit like a nice, strong, rich yeah. vein and obviously Ray Bradbury. Um, but like for like for I would say Fahrenheit 451 is sort of like oh that's his that's an important book mm-hmm. but I've read it once and mm-hmm. I've never felt like I needed to read it again it was mm-hmm. like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. good well mm-hmm. said good yeah. stuff like mm-hmm. that's important for people mm-hmm. to read and think mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. and then that mm-hmm. just was not as important to me as some no, of the short no, stories no, or Lion Wine what about Isaac Asimov I like yeah I like Isaac Asimov I didn't. I think Childhood's End, that's Arthur C. Clarke. Mm. Isaac Asimov, I didn't read very much, and anything I read, I would have been much younger. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I liked mm. Arthur C. Clarke. Mm-hmm. And then there was a whole range of like fantasy sci-fi that I just mm. never even touched, that yeah. a lot of other people got really into. Did you Like ever, Piers Anthony? Um, I, I know that name, but um, what about James Triptree? Never. I've never, uh, I don't think I've ever read anything. Well, James Triptree is fascinating. I read a bunch of his stuff, but actually he was not a he. He was a she, um, and I think she may have worked for the CIA. Oh, wow. And Triptree was her pseudonym, perhaps because the world of science fiction. Yeah. Well, there was Ursula K. Le Guin, but... So she wrote under this pseudonym, I think in part because she worked for the government and wrote these amazing, amazing stories. And at one point, someone was going to try, I think it was like Brad Pitt's company. This was years ago before, I don't know, somehow they were going to make a movie out of her stories or books. And I read them and somehow someone suggested me, but I didn't get the job. I wonder whatever became of it. But I think just like, there might have been a biography of her. She was a fascinating yeah. person. So, gonna, I gotta write yeah, that down. Triptree, James Triptree. Well, you could listen to your podcast and 
But it's good you're writing it down. Yeah, I'm, te- I'm, I'm teasing you. <laughs> I bet if I listen to my own podcast, I would never yeah. podcast again. Uh, and so we were sort of talking about that in terms of not reading Bradbury since you were younger, um, but then reading other mm-hmm. sci-fi. Was that was sci-fi a particular mm-hmm. genre that you were interested in when you were younger? As like me, did you sort of have that wide-eyed wonder about type of stuff like that? Um, I think. You know, I think, yeah, my high school years, there was definitely a lot of science fiction. I think I was, um, and and maybe it was eighth grade, but yeah, it was a lot of Asimov. I mean, um, my, in the seventh grade, I had a wonderful English teacher who gave me Tolkien. So first I read The Hobbit, then The Lord of the Rings, which I just devoured, and he gave me Tarzan, and I still have like the first 24 Tarzan books and Edgar Rice Burroughs was also would write science fiction but I only read the Tarzan books and then and then I must have gotten into Asimov and I I think I attended like a talk Asimov gave and shook his hand backstage I was probably 14 or 15 New York Uh, New Jersey Jersey, just outside of New York I grew up about 30 miles from New York and um and then and then that led to Vonnegut sophomore year of high school and in many and he wrote science fiction and some of his novels were science fiction-esque and like player piano and um you know i guess um even um oh god they're all you know cat's cradle Cat's cr- I, oh yeah i mean it really is it's that's yeah. all kind of slaughterhouse five is yeah. deeply sci-fi i think and, breakfast for champions yeah yeah so i breakfast of champions yeah so that he was my big in like sophomore year of high school reading all of vonnegut and then i took a somehow there was like a little creative writing class in my public high school and we had to write a novel but it was really just a long short story yeah and so mine was completely influenced <laughs> i think i have it somewhere oh, by God, vonnegut and it was called uh keep out of the reach of children or title. or pesticide seven because like there was this <laughs> pesticide that was being you know sprayed in New Jersey yeah. and I even did little drawings throughout How the great book. Is that? Yeah. Oh, I hope you still yeah. have that. I think I might. I I listen. You might have four versions of it if it kippled. Yeah. Well, I yeah. Well, that yeah. I don't think that would be considered detritus. But I had all my life detritus in Brooklyn, and then. And then I had to hire a professional de-hoarder uh, who spent like two months um, in my apartment, little apartment in Brooklyn, trying to sort through everything. And I came in for two different like three or four day sessions with her. Is this part of the piece that you ended up writing the piece no, about? No, this, this was Because this is fascinating. This, this was Just po- the relationship between oh. a person who's a stranger going through Oh, but she was, she, she was a great effects. lady. She had been uh, Frank Miller's a longtime assistant. Yeah. And so she was used to artists and she was an artist herself and great lady. And um, we worked together and then she shipped everything to Brook, uh, to Los Angeles. And now it's all in my garage in Los uh-huh. Angeles. <laughs> that's where I found these pictures that you said you needed a picture yeah. of me, my younger self. Uh, but do you have this thing with one's former selves or past self that, or from different ages, like I, I feel like I changed so much, you know, I, mm-hmm. I ran into someone yesterday who I hadn't seen in like three years and who had been exceedingly significant for me. And, um, and she said, do I seem different? 
And I felt like it was my own eyes wow. that were different. Yeah. You, you know, that it, yeah. I, I was so different that in a way, yes, she seemed different. But so I don't necessarily, I recognize myself in those pictures. You know what I mean? They're like, they're sheddings, mm. you know? Yeah, but, and I also think, I mean, someone, not to just make a broad generalization, but someone like you who has uh, had many experiences. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know, I think the relationship that a person might have towards their past could be so different for someone who grew up in the same town that they are, in which they're now an adult. Mm -hmm. Do they have that same relationship Mm -hmm. or, or have they kind of kept everything close like is Mm. everything sort of close together Mm. in a way that the more experiences you have and the more maybe i don't want to say like circumspect but maybe the more the more you evaluate Mm. those experiences and really feel them and taste them the way a Mm. writer does Mm -hmm. i wonder if that kind of stretches out i mean i don't know why i'm Mm -hmm. using this analogy of like close you know tight and small Mm -hmm. but but almost like you know paper dolls where there's Mm -hmm. like maybe the person who stays in one place and Mm -hmm. and it doesn't have a a wealth of experiences that stretch Mm -hmm. out and beyond Mm -hmm. kind of has that one version and then Mm -hmm. you sort of you know you cut out the doll but there's like Mm -hmm. so many layers of paper that there's all of these versions of jonathan here 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 they're all linked but this one to that one is so Mm -hmm. far apart but but you but you've sought out experiences that put that distance between mm-hmm. you and your past yeah. and your sheddings as you put it. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, the the, the paper doll thing. I, 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 don't I, know where I no 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 no. But I once had a similar notion, and then I think I had written a line that I never quite used somewhere. But that was like every version was a little bit an idiot. So it was just one idiot after the next <laughs> of myself. But yeah, it's. In, I mean, I I guess. I see what you're saying about someone who might stay in their hometown or near their hometown and 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 the world around them remains so familiar. I, I think for me, it's experience or not, it has to do with somehow waking up in your own mind. Hmm. Like I, I, I feel like it's just what I'm going through at the moment that I had been running my whole life and my mind had been running and... And I've been reading a lot, you know, about meditation and and that my mind had just been going all my life and desperate and confused and scared. And so racing at night, try, you, you know, but did I ever pause and and just be quiet in my mind and my life? So I think somehow it's more like these were all these different sleeping selves. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that and I'm trying to wake up now. I don't know that I am. And I'm sure three years from now, I'll think of this self that was sitting on this couch as being sleepwalking. And, you know, Which isn't but, the worst thing in the world to no, know but that you're still not, capable of those kinds of uh, evolutions unless you're being cruel, like unless you're being hard on those yeah. versions in a way that's, you know, sort of hurtful to yeah. yourself yeah no one yeah like no i compassionate uh, about those sleeping selves yeah no that's very important we have to be compassionate to- towards ourselves so that we can be compassionate towards others and yeah so even being compassionate to and i i do i feel i see how he was running you know i see like how like i was you know like a fish on a 
boat gasping for air mm. for th- you know years but decades it, do you think that that's again not to just push the the narrative of being a writer mm. forward too much but when you're a person who writes about yourself mm-hmm. ostensibly mm-hmm. um do you think that that will surprise people to know like do you think that that's reflected in your writing because i think again that, that there's this kind of preconceived mm. notion that a writer who writes about himself or mm. herself mm. has a, an awareness of the present and mm. in fact is able to look back at a recent experience and really take it apart and mm-hmm. you know create all mm. this texture around it to share with other people that it would be surprising to people to to, mm. to hear like oh you were doing all of that and it mm-hmm. felt mm-hmm. like you were examining something mm-hmm. and really that was still part of this process of getting on to mm-hmm. something else mm-hmm. does that make sense yeah, I mean, I probably was more awake than I realized. and But like in my novels and then in my nonfiction, I, certainly early on in my career, it was all very autobiographical-based. And then even this recent book, uh, You Were Never Really Here, which I brought Janet a copy of just for people out in the world. But um, underneath, even though the character is far removed from me and I wrote it in the third person, it it was based on my emotional state at the time. Um, but, and then just putting in, but I, but even when I was writing more clearly autobiographically, I used to have a first person column in a, an alternative newspaper in the late nineties in New York. And then I collected those columns into books. I was sort of like, like an actor, like what you do sometimes I was sort of playing a role but playing a role in prose. Mm. But I'm sure I did give insights into things I really did think. I don't remember quite what I've written. There's a certain um, uh, amnesia that comes to my own books. I don't know what's in them Mm. for the most part or why I wrote the things I did or what I was thinking or how do I even sit down? I'm like, I've written quite a few books. I'm like, when did I sit down? <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah. but yeah, I think I had some awareness of course. And like you said, be compassionate to that former self. But I think everyone would identify with the idea of, you know, not everyone, but that, you know, if you're always trying to grow, that you feel somewhat distant from your earlier self, yeah. you, you, you know, because you're, because it's the thing, oh, I, I wish I had known the things then that I know now. Yeah. I might've made better choices. I might've been less hurtful. Yeah. You know? Well, it's funny because anybody <clears throat> who listens to my podcast, uh, frequently enough, um, particularly in in- inception, my experience being here was that I had felt like I had evolved past certain things. And then when I moved to Los Angeles, I felt like I was kind of slingshot back Mm. to a feeling of being a teenager, which is Mm. why I felt Mm. inspired Mm. to return to that era Mm. Mm -hmm. with other people. Because for me, it was kind of a a little bit of an awakening where I thought, you know, oh, I'm, I mean, however old I was when I started this, but I, I, you know, I've passed 30. So Mm. clearly I'm an adult. Like this Mm -hmm. is, must be what it feels like to be an adult, which is the sort of biggest, Mm -hmm. you know, cosmic joke we all experience as we age, Mm. uh, is at what point, like maybe when we start growing a little is when we realize how young and, uh, you know, uh, lacking in knowledge Mm -hmm. and understanding and wisdom we actually are. Maybe that's the first step towards, you know, Mm -hmm. some sort of higher state. But, uh, 
but coming here, I just suddenly was so, you know, confronted because in San Francisco, and I'll keep this short for anybody who's heard me say this before, although it's been a while since we talked about it, but uh, confronted with all these feelings, having worked in San Francisco and feeling like, you know, I was, I was so much less conscious of my body, so much less con- like my mm. body was something I enjoyed and celebrated mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I had a tattoo and short hair and I cut mm. my own hair and there was just, mm. it was very, um, I, like my experience of living in my own body and maybe I'm, you know, kind of uh, sugarcoating a little now because in the past, mm. but I just felt like I, I had a closer, more loving relationship to my body. I wasn't working out. I was mm-hmm. younger, but I was mm-hmm. also walking everywhere because it was San Francisco. Yeah, yeah. And so all of that was so much less at the front of my consciousness. And when I came here, I was confronted with these feelings of insecurity. Like I'm trying out for stuff. Mm. The value of your work isn't necessarily a reflection of the actual Mm. value of your work. And Mm -hmm. what is this relationship I'm having with this person I don't know who I suddenly feel I'm in competition with or I feel Mm. that I'm being judged for, you know, all that kind of Mm. stuff was just such a mind fuck Mm -hmm. because it forced me to realize like, oh, I haven't evolved past this if I'm having all these feelings. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I started to feel such a tenderness towards my teenage self Mm -hmm. because I thought like, oh God, Mm -hmm. I, this is how I felt then all the time. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was kind of, I had to, I wanted to kind of look at all of that at the beginning and mm-hmm. understand it and hear mm-hmm. from other people, particularly people who had been mm-hmm. in this business longer about what it, uh, you know, how you reconcile those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, very early on m- my sense of LA, uh, that is something other people feel too, is that it can either turn you into the best version of yourself or the very worst. Mm-hmm. It's just a question of what, you know, what you sort of look at. There's this book called The Diamond in the Window that I talk about sometimes on the podcast by uh, an author named Jane Langton. And it was written in the probably the 60s. But it's a children's story. But there's uh, a, a essentially it's about transcendentalism. Mm-hmm. And that's the I mean, that's a word that gets bandied about mm-hmm. a lot. In the, in the, but these children have these magical dreams, these mm-hmm. two children, these, mm-hmm. this brother and sister. And one of the dreams is that they are standing in front of a mirror and they look at their, they're standing in front of a mirror, but there's two, they're standing from two mirrors. It's sort of the beginning mm-hmm. of a mirror maze, if you will. Mm-hmm. And they're looking at themselves and they, they can see both reflections and they realize they can actually walk through the reflection. So, okay, this mm-hmm. is going to take, this is somehow I'm seeing a reflection, but it's also this kind of door. And they walk through and then they start seeing these subtle differences in mm. the various reflections. Like, okay, we walk through here. Now I'm looking at mm. four versions of us. Mm. Well, wait a minute. You know, for example, the, the little girl, uh, Eleanor, has freckles. She hates her freckles. Mm-hmm. She realizes, wait, in one image of do I have less freckles? Well, let's do that. I want to be less freckles. Mm. And so they find themselves choosing. And as they choose, as they, as they make more vain kind of, uh, you know, superficial choices, the amount of reflections become very, very limited and there's more hardness in the face and more sort of stooped in the shoulders. But when they make decisions that have to do with like, oh, she's holding a paintbrush or, you know, he's, he's, he's helping, whatever it is. I mean, that's like maybe a little more overt than it is in the book, but they realize that they have more and more and more choices. And I think that's... Um, I don't even know where I was going with that. I guess that's the kind of the LA of it all too, to me is Mm. is sort of here you have the situation where if you choose this version of yourself, if you choose the much skinnier version of yourself, that's great. 
But what does that look like five choices from now? Does that mean mm. that you've blocked out all of this creativity because you're mm. so focused mm. on being tiny? Mm. You know mm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. Versus like, oh, here's that. Ver- oh, that version. Oh, that version of myself uh, ends up addicted to heroin mm-hmm. versus, mm. you know, here's this version that doesn't worry as much about that and writes a script because they have the energy and the, the s- nutrition. Mm-hmm. To, mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I think that's like, that's kind of where this all came from. It's like, how do I reckon all that? Yeah. So, so for you, and sometimes I get confused and maybe you could tell me, should one say actor or actress? Oh, I don't know. Yeah. I think I say actor, but I, yeah. I don't know. I don't know which one is the more PC. I don't know if feminizing a version is now considered more feminist or if just using one word for everybody is considered. Yeah. yeah I don't know. So anyway, so for you coming here to LA as an actor or actress, so you became more aware of your outer image because you were being judged on that and oftentimes cast or not cast yeah. just basic uh, based on your appearance. And then it goes deeper than that too, right? Because mm-hmm. it's about your yourself as well. It's like the mm-hmm. sound of your voice, mm-hmm. the way you interpret comedy, right, the right. way, you know, can you can you cry on like things it starts it gets deeper and deeper and deeper and then mm-hmm. it just becomes totally raw because it's mm-hmm. like, oh, I, I have nothing separating as a writer, you know, I can put something out there. It's very sensitive, but it's at least it's being evaluated out there versus yeah, yeah. this is it. This is what I got. I, yeah. I mean, I've done a little bit of acting more just as a lark, but I, yeah, I mean, just the, the scrutiny so I could. And then, but if this is how you would like to express yourself creatively, you know, because I've been working with actors, I know that they like make believe, you know, yeah, they like, absolutely. they like playing, mm-hmm. you know, I worked with Patrick Stewart. I saw, you know, and again, what you were sort of talking about aging, I was thinking, you know, I don't know that, I guess in some ways we become adults when, when we take responsibility or care for others or, you know, there's a f- something adult like that, you, you know, where you, where you stop, where you know that life is difficult and you have to face things. I and mean, maybe that's a quality of adulthood, but I know that I feel, I still feel like a boy. And I, I think I have, you know, there's body image distortion. I think I have age distortion in terms of my maturity. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, you know, I'm 54 and I'm like, still hoping I'm going to figure things out. You know what I mean? But I also then feel the clock ticking like crazy. You know, like in 16 years, I'll be 70. And 16 years ago, I was 38. It's like, oh, I don't know. It's just, and and then we can get into death and (laughs) mortality, which I won't, but I'm just, it's anyway, so I understand where this uh, podcast came from was that all these insecurities about it seems like one's outer self and then and how to feel about your inner self and and be at peace with the two but 
Um, but I do are, feel, are you and, doing? And are you and you're doing better now? More. Like, yeah, but, it's relaxed so you feel good so about more. yourself and in your think, body. Yeah, and, I mean, I think the it's the the those things are all still there. Again, it's sort of like how mm. loud if you if you have a if your if your brain is a stereo system. Uh, I'm using this even mm. though I would never know how to like use an equalizer or like mm. maybe you could turn yeah. up the mm. treble and bass. But let's oh, say you're so a sound yeah. you know engineer. It's like how how what what how loud am I going to let certain parts of the, my brain be? And, mm-hmm. and there is a part of my brain that could be very loud all the time and worrying about that. Yeah. But now I think I try to do better about, again, kind of making that decision, not feeling that it's something that's coming over me or that is happening to me, but that it's a decision I've made. Well, I've mm-hmm. made a decision to feel fat today, or I've mm-hmm. made a decision to feel unfunny today. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, why can't I attach mm-hmm. to the the decision I made three days ago when I felt like I was, you know, a fit, wonderful person with a good heart who mm-hmm. has a great sense of humor. Like, why can't I turn that back up mm-hmm. and sort of be, you know, having that relationship to it more and it feeling less inevitable or feeling less like it's happening to me. So I mm-hmm. think, and part of that is getting older. Mm-hmm. And that's the part that I celebrate is sort mm-hmm. of like, God, I, I want to lean into years mm-hmm. meaning something and mm-hmm. years living in your own skin meaning mm-hmm. something and being, I mean, I, I absolutely feel like I'm going to be, you know, the 75 year old woman that people either really like or are like, Oh, she's so kooky. (laughs) God, (laughs) she's a kook. You know, I feel that kookiness is just, I can feel it, but I really want that. I want to be, that woman who's mm-hmm. like, I don't care. Mm-hmm. I don't care. Yeah, just, you know, just you know, be you. It's interesting. I think like just because you use the word attach, it's like maybe it's sort of attaching to no notion, mm-hmm. you know, but just sort of, um, I don't know, like I, I, again, I was sort of talking about that. I felt like I was running, running in my mind, constant noise in my mind you know, these voices, whether they're saying, I'm ugly, I'm fat, I'm uh, this, or, or all the other voices, you know, mm-hmm. fears and loneliness and confusion and anger, or, you know, the thing, all the tapes we play, that if to just try to quiet them, and then, of course, they come back, this is what the mind does, but underneath there, I think in us, like is such uh just such a beautiful life force that has nothing which can connect to our outer physical self but there is such uh you know i think all the religions probably touch on this but that inside there's like this i don't know it sounds cheesy but some kind of flow or I, I, a lot of times I guess I think of it as like some river, some underground river that's in my belly mm. that has a lot of strength and wisdom and kindness and intuition. And then it manifested itself in like this tree with two legs, thankfully, and feet and toes at the end. And so it's good to like spread your toes. You can forget about your toes. But yeah, we can get very hung up on our bodies. I've had a very complicated, tormented relationship with my own body and and when things have gone wrong with it. And then sometimes I, I also am a strong... Well, I, I do feel that we can manifest... Certainly we can manifest illnesses that can be connected to elements of our 
psyche. Um, like I, I developed an odd condition in my hands, that, which is genetic, and this is faulty thinking, but it, when it began, it was when this um, relationship ended like eight years ago, and the woman had loved my hands. She thought my hands were beautiful and handsome. And then I thought, because I had wrecked things in my mind, then I then wrecked my hands so that they would no longer be beautiful. Now, this is, I think, faulty thinking. But I'm also really into, and just to get the word out to anyone who might hear this, uh, a book that I love very much is called Healing Back Pain, uh, The Mind-Body Connection by Dr. John E. Sarno. He recently died, and there was a documentary about him, which I'm in, called All the Rage. And it was very much about how neck and back pain is mostly connected. So you even begin to move Oh, that yeah, especially because I have a neck it, injury, so I'm uh, always aware of Well, neck. Oh, I always almost brought you the it. book Healing Back Pain, I'll because a lot of times what we think oh, is a neck yeah, injury, it, which yeah. could begin with a yeah. little bit of a twinge. Yeah. That's where we put all our anger. Oh, absolutely. And, and we, you know, we run with a slight injury, and then we keep it going, because the brain at some point learned a faulty coping mechanism, which is, I'm going to create pain to destroy distract the host from their anger because we're taught sometime in our childhood or preteen years that anger is an unacceptable emotion. Right. So we create all this back pain, neck pain, shoulder pain, you know, to uh, distract ourselves from our anger because also in this culture, which might be part of becoming an adult, we don't necessarily learn how to deal with anger or that life is difficult. And so we get right. frustrated and so we create this pain and it can be extremely debilitating. The pain is real. All the brain is doing is cutting off the flow of oxygen to muscles surrounding that neck area, creating spasms. But once you become aware of this, once you, like I was talking to some woman I met at the dojo where I do jujitsu and the sense I knew that I was big into talking to people about psychosomatic illness and she'd been having a lot of back pain but clearly very fit and active and you sort of have to just fight through it because your back is very strong and and it's okay that the you know the the you have this lack of oxygen causing this pain there's probably nothing wrong with you that's what Sarno discovered he was an orthopedist for like 40 years at NYU and he discovered that a high percentage of his patients nothing was wrong with them now you have to rule out actual physical in injury yeah. but he helped Larry David Howard Stern they're all in this documentary wow. myself included yeah and um so I was talking to this woman and I said you know there might be something that you're very angry about and is there something you're angry about? She said, my mother. Mm -hmm. And she goes, my mother is in my back. Wow. And then I, and I said, and then she was going to order wow. the book. And I saw her a week later and I said, how are you doing? She goes, you know, I haven't gotten the book yet, but I'm feeling so much better because just, from... just knowing that, okay, like, because you can be like, oh, I better not bend over. Should I go to a chiropractor? Should right. I go to this doctor? Should I take Motrin? What should I do? And you're just busy thinking about all this and not living your life and slowly just becoming less and less active because there could be a self-destructive impulse taking over like me with my kipple in my apartment of there there is an impulse in life to want to withdraw and give up yeah. and 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 sometimes so the this psychosomatic illness can do that and and people's lives can literally be crippled. I get very upset about these professional athletes. And a lot of times back and neck pain come from people who are very driven, who, who right. are hard on themselves. And, and so they create all this pain in their body. 
And so a lot of these great athletes, like the pitcher for the Dodgers, Clayton Kershaw, keeps having lower back pains because he's a perfectionist. He wants to be great. And he and, and maybe, you know, he gets angry at himself because he can't be perfect. Nobody can be perfect. And so he creates this back pain to distract himself from his frustration. And then he can't pitch. And I really want to get him the book. Steve Kerr, the coach of the Golden State Warriors, great athlete, probably very driven, seems very cool in those interviews, but obviously very, you know, a driven human being because he's been the coach of the Warriors. He was a, a TNT announcer. He was like the general manager of the, of, of, of the Phoenix Suns. Yeah, the I'm Sons actually not, I'm, I'm so not a sports person, yet mm. I grew up going to U of A Wildcats basketball games with mm. my dad and mm. Steve Kerr was the star player and i mm. loved steve kerr so yeah. whenever i hear yeah. steve kerr's name i always think of the announcer from you know when i was a child and he was a a, a strapping young athlete and, and he a great human being i love yeah. the way he talks about politics and, the, and his approach to coaching really intelligent human being but he had must have had such severe back pain that he got surgery and they nicked his spine <sighs> and these back surgeries are like something out of medieval europe right. they're com- really probably 95 percent unnecessary anyway so that's my little spiel so for anyone out there Healing Back Pain, The Mind-Body Connection by Dr. Sarno, or see the documentary All the Rage um, by uh, a person who became a good friend of mine, uh, Michael Galinsky. And um, so there we are. That's uh, on, I, on that issue. I absolutely have to read it, although I... I almost could brought you that I, book but today, I, but yeah. I, I don't know why. But I, I, I brought you a Pema Chodron book who's... Also uh, a great decision. Yeah. Also a great decision. Yeah, yeah I, th- I mean, I absolutely have... I mean, I... F- I, I flew off of my bike and landed mm, on my mm, mm, neck mm, and landed mm. on my, my back, my upper oh, back. Mm. So I have something real, but it's well, did you break a bone? without question. Did I didn't break anything. I have arthritis now because ev- the tissue mm. sort of tried right. to, you know, heal. Um, but it's, but there, but I, there's no question in my mind that I'm, I exacerbate it with tension. Like there's yeah. no question. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's there, but it's, right. it's exacerbated every moment by how the, where I hold my tension and sort of being hard on myself yeah. and, you know, kind of hold like that, that sense of, um, maybe your your body and your brain having this connection too where it's been hurt once and so that it's that thing we do where we hold tight because right. emotionally <laughs> and physically we don't want to be hurt again right, right? so those things form mm-hmm. this little mm-hmm. bond mm-hmm. and this conversation that's being had that's like keep everything tight hold mm-hmm. it hold it hold mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. be strong don't let that mm-hmm. hurt again mm-hmm. don't let mm-hmm. that damage you know hurt mm-hmm. you and all you're doing is just as you said like making your world smaller or you know creating mm. more pain because instead of letting go of something you're just t- trying to hold right, on right yeah you know? that yeah the fear of pain actually uh i think does bring on more pain you know it's like the more you try to keep the world out or keep out uncomfortable things so you get tinier and tinier and then you're just living in a state of paranoia i feel like that's like agoraphobia in a sense like they've become so scared of the world but then then they're just trapped and the thing is we have to pain and pleasure all these things are okay and we we learn from everything this is becoming a very new age i'm not being very funny um this but, does not have to be a funny podcast okay. but I, I i i do think though that a lot of times these areas where we have 
chronic pain may have begun with an injury, but the brain learns like, oh, they know they had an injury there. So I can keep hurting them there because they'll believe it. And they'll be like, well, I'm not saying I fell off the bike that time. So I'm I'm, it's a permission. It's like, oh, I received permission to just make Mm -hmm. this like I can do this whenever I want. Right. Because it's an open invitation. Like, hey, pain. Right. I'm expecting it. Yeah, so you know? I'll have to get you that book. I almost yeah. grabbed it. I didn't want to be presumptuous, but that because I didn't even know that you sometimes had neck pain. Yeah, but um, but I I buy extra copies of Healing Back Pain and extra copies of Pema Chodron to give to people. Yeah, so. well, that so that was one of the things that I was gonna. Uh, I, I, I mean, I, and I have no interest in like forcing the issue of teenage years because I already mm-hmm. feel like we've completely opened that wide and I'm great mm-hmm. if we never touch on it again. Mm-hmm. But um, just in terms of the, the that feeling of openness and awareness to the world, one of the things that I think mm-hmm. is so like adorable about being a teenager and certainly how I felt and just seeing the the transition as I get older that feeling of needing to be original and individual and yet it's like charming because for example, when you wrote your Kurt Vonnegut tribute, mm. uh, was that a time for, cause for me, that was a time when, again, I was obsessed with Dylan Thomas. So mm. every poem I wrote, everything mm. I wrote, I wanted to capture how he made me feel. Mm-hmm, I wanted to mm-hmm, capture mm-hmm, that mm-hmm, in my mm-hmm. own work. Mm. Yet at the same time I was, I wanted to be the most, like, I, I, it becomes like, am I special? Mm-hmm. How am I special? What makes me special and different and important? And you don't understand how I'm feeling. I'm pretty sure I'm the first person who's ever felt this way. Mm-hmm. All of those kinds of conversations. Mm-hmm. And for me, and maybe for you, the older I get, the more delight, like, the more happy I am to be told. I mean, how often do I ask my therapist, I just need you to tell me I'm probably not the only one who thinks this way. Like it's become so important to feel like, oh, I'm just a I'm just a cliche. Like that mm-hmm. actually is such a, it's so reassuring to mm-hmm. me. I feel like I'm interesting and special in whatever mm-hmm. ways that's important, but I also feel like ego gets you into so much trouble. And, mm-hmm. you know, so mm-hmm. there's so there's something so wonderful now. And I really feel that age has to do with it, so much to do with it. Is just feeling like, oh, I'm a part of something bigger, or mm-hmm. I don't, I, I'm, I am not solely responsible for whatever is me, or mm-hmm. you know what I mean, and mm-hmm. and and that if I have this this frightened reaction to something, to hear that that's just kind of part of what human beings go through, and mm-hmm. that there's another, there's something on the other side of that, mm-hmm. um, overcoming it, or you know that kind of comfort, mm-hmm. it makes such a difference versus wanting to feel like I better feel like I'm the only person in the world who feels mm-hmm. this way or mm-hmm. does this or mm-hmm. offers this. Right. Does that does that resonate with you? Or did you want to feel very special when you were a teenager? Uh, um, yeah, I'm trying to think back to my teenage years. I I don't, I don't know that I necessarily wanted to feel special, but I do think it is important. Like one thing, like a meditation thing that I done is let's say you have a certain pain right and 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 maybe you're like obsessing about someone like someone's really annoyed you and you're just like running through this stuff like you did this you did that or i or whatever or how could you like and and rather than all that which is lost suffering in your mind you just sort of feel in your body how that particular pain hurts and why you know maybe and what is the origin of that hurt and so you just sort of breathe it in and you hold it in your body rather than like trying to intellectualize it think it through many ways just hold that 
feeling in your body and then exhale to yourself well-being but then others out there who are probably suffering in a similar way because every feeling every suffering you have millions of people have the exact same thing you, you know yeah. and whether it be heartbreak or you know uh longing for a, a you know a dead parent or, or something like everyone million human beings there's like talk about paper dolls everyone's had those feelings but yeah so I, I think that is good. I think for me in high school, I'm trying to think, freshman year, see, I was, again, with the body, and it's something I wrote about in one of my essays, I had a weird thing, which is I had a late puberty. And puberty didn't begin for me until, like, after freshman year. Mm -hmm. So I was very tormented by this and felt very you know, just so confused. And I was, I'd made the high school tennis team, and the coach insisted that we shower, you know, and... And I saw the boys, there were 18-year-old boys. I was 15, it was great, I made the team. But they had huge penises and hair, and I'm like, no way could I shower. And, yeah. and I, I ended up getting mononucleosis and <laughs> passing out on the court. So I think freshman year was like feeling very tiny and scared and not wanting to be killed. <laughs> and, and then sophomore year, okay, puberty, started having a little confidence, started writing for the school paper. Um, I never was a cool kid. Um, but I was a good student, but I was also, I played a lot of sports, but I was on all the weird sports teams. I, I never went out for tennis again. I, the whole shower thing got me so disturbed, but I was on the fencing team, the soccer team, ran track. Um, but I, so, but I didn't, I ended up, my friends ended up being like the kids in the band and, and I kind of felt, I felt somewhere inside me that I was special, but that nobody seemed to notice. Uh, but then, but then I sort of let go of that high school world a bit. And I began taking fencing lessons in New York City, I would take the bus in. And so I began to have my own adventures. And then I read Jack Kerouac. And I knew there was a world, I guess, or I began to sense there was a world outside of maybe my somewhat, you know, normal, maybe quasi provincial high school world where there was probably a lot of cruelty. Mm -hmm. And in my case, some anti-Semitism that would come out to make you feel like an other. Mm -hmm. But I remember I then, luckily, because of fencing, I got into Princeton and I went to Princeton and there was this good looking guy that everyone looked up to and he was a mime and, you know, and suddenly... <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't necessarily what I thought you'd yeah. say he was. Oh, well, I love but, 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 everyone looked up to him, man. He was a mime. Yeah. Oof, okay. Yeah, but but like well, in the crowd I began to run with very quickly became people in the arts. Yeah, absolutely. You, you, you know, absolutely. and so like and he was like this great mime. I was like, oh my God, he was so cool and he was good looking. And I noticed that he wore dark socks with his sneakers. And I was like, what? Because in the <laughs> high school that I went to, it was almost like that was one of the more important things I learned at Princeton than a lot of the books I read was like, oh my gosh, because I thought if you wear dark socks with sneakers, you're a nerd. This is so like, there's something deeply wrong with you. And then suddenly, like, oh my gosh, this, this is stupid arbitrary rules on how one should dress or appear that I had been somewhat saddled with in high school or and and most people would be and then and then you evolve past that and that these you know but yeah one so the my high school years I I, I don't know that I, I wanted to be special I, I um but I was 
but I also began drinking a lot in high school. Totally hid that from my parents. I, when I discovered, are you an only child? Uh, no, I have an older sister, but she was off in college. So the high school years was kind of like being an yeah. only child. But like when I discovered alcohol and got drunk for the first time sophomore year, you know, went to a party and played quarters. And somehow back then drinking was like if you could get past the third beer because the first two or three just tasted terrible. It's yeah. like, ugh, horrible. Yeah. Then the third one, suddenly <laughs> the world, suddenly I felt cool. Right. That's right. I remember I got drunk and we went to the video arcade and I felt cool and i did really great at this driving game and then the guy passed this guy was going to the movies with his parents which was kind of nerdy and i think i was like even wearing a did i have a bandana on the very i I don't know (laughs) and i saw the guy who was really cool and i felt like i could look him in the eye be like hey you know like i was cool now but alcohol made me feel cool and so i got drunk more or less every weekend Mm. of all my teenage years and vomiting constantly and um so alcohol in some ways carried me through for good or bad mm. and what's interesting it was like um this guy and he was very nice uh he was like the 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 uh, the quarterback of the football team, the best player in the basketball team, best player in the baseball team. None of our teams in our era were great, but he was our best guy. But he was also a sweet guy, very good at math and science. So he was a little bit of a, an outlier himself, but nevertheless, the, you know, voted best looking. And we had been friends briefly, like in the fourth or fifth grade, but then he kind of dropped me. You know, but he was always friendly to me in the hall. And he wasn't like a super snobby, evil, cool guy, the way some of them could be, just like cruel. And, um, but anyway, years, years later, I gave a reading here in Los Angeles and he showed up. And I was just like, and because he had a generous spirit and he had moved on in his life and he was like a diving instructor somewhere here in Los Angeles. And And it felt, I felt like great, like that, the cool guy had come now to seek me out. Yeah. And and then I think maybe we tried to get together, but then we didn't. And and then I felt like the nerd again who had gone, <laughs> who'd, who'd gone over his house and had a football ca- catch and then never hung out again. But um, yeah, those were... Yeah, I was an outsider. But then the, the, the books I read helped me with that a little bit. I mean, I wasn't a total outsider, but reading Vonnegut, reading Kerouac, yeah. like in high school, the, you know, and Hunter Thompson, and I became the editor of the school paper. And so the world of the high school hierarchy became um, less important to me as I got in, into, you know, yeah. senior year and all that. And again, it's that, like you said, even just that feeling mm. of life outside of mm. high school. And be- mm. I'm always fascinated mm. by people who grew up, who grow up in or in close proximity to New York and actually kind of take advantage of that because I Mm. definitely also speak to people who were in New Jersey and never went into the city and felt like it was, you know, a million miles away Mm -hmm. versus people who were going in and, you know, seeing shows or taking Mm. classes Mm. or uh, because I just didn't have that, you know, growing up in Arizona, there's no... Mm. There's yeah. no New York, and it, it just yeah. feels like something out of a movie or a book. It doesn't feel like there, it, 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 your world is your world, and that just felt like so incredibly far away. And I think that's when I went to San Francisco, why yeah. the idea that yeah. you could live there when yeah. I was 13, going there and going, so you're saying I could just, I could live here. Mm-hmm. I could belong here. Mm-hmm. And that just mm-hmm. you know, cemented in my mm-hmm. brain uh, so profoundly. But um, 
And now you can't, though, right? San Francisco. I know. Just now, been now like unless a, you've invented an uh, app and you're like 20, who, you can't afford to live there. Who lives in our cities now. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's, New York oof. has been so destroyed, yeah. too, by gentrification. And anyway. That's interesting. We live in interesting times. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, what was it? Oh, the, the quick thing how, I was going to say about... How are we doing on time? We're doing I'm, very well. I, I'm I gonna, need a watch, so I have no idea how long we've been We're doing very well. Um, I, I'm going to start this MASH game fairly soon because I know that we're going to want to talk about the, the answers you're giving mm. a little bit. But the one thing I would say about Vonnegut that I meant to say when you first mm. brought him up is uh, that he was such a great person for me to to start reading when I was in high school too. And I think it really is because he, to me, he kind of represents this idea of, uh, of a really smart, funny, intimidating mm. adult mm. who in his writing kind of goes, Hey, psst, come here. You're like me. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I, I'm not talking down to you. You're mm-hmm. one of me. You're, you're one of us. <laughs> yeah. Come on over. Yeah. You get this stuff, right? <laughs> yeah. Like it just felt so like right. he just gave me a pat. He gave me a ticket mm-hmm. into this whole other world. Mm-hmm. Like, I guess I am cool because mm-hmm. I'm reading him and I feel like he's talking to me and he's so mm-hmm. casual, right. but he's so sharp. And mm-hmm. he just, mm-hmm. it, it really was a feeling of permission of like, mm-hmm. Hey, maybe I, maybe I belong in this world. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. I think he's very special in that way. Yeah. I mean, I, in a bored to death episode, uh, the Jonathan character, um, played by Jason Schwartzman, is teaching a writing class, and I had him write two phrases on the blackboard, and one of them was Vonnegut, and it was, um, "We're here to fart around," <laughs> you know, it's like, Great. and then the other one is like, "Hell is other people." So we had Vonnegut and Sartre, oh, sure. um, but. Uh, yeah, no, I think that's a good observation about him that he he tried to simplify things and 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 the humor of it all. Um and yeah, and it wasn't talking down. Uh I got to meet him uh in 1993. These very nice people gave me a, a room in their uh uh like brownstone on 48th Street in New York or townhouse. To, to write in because the, the little apartment I, where I rented a bedroom, there was no, no room for a desk. And so he lived across the street and would sit on his stoop and smoke cigarettes because his wife uh, wouldn't let him smoke inside the house. And so I saw him there and then they had a cocktail party, um, which isn't that piece I gave you about my dog. I, 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 re, I printed up also this old diary entry from that time and they had a cocktail party and he came and, uh, you know, big, bushy-haired, and I think he had the mustache. And, yeah. And I, I think I told him that he, you know, he he made me love books, you know, reading him as a young, and he said, thank you for telling me that. You know, it wasn't going to indulge me for long, you know what I mean? <laughs> but um, so anyway, that was my brief encounter. And at that same cocktail party, I think I met uh, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. Oh, wow. And I brought him a drink, and he was just like... Um, you're too kind. You know, oh, when, of I, when, I, when I brought him, I've his, never said drink. you're too kind to anyone. And yeah. if I said that, I'd feel like such a charlatan. <laughs> well, you you're could use kind. it now. <laughs> you're, too, oh, you're too kind. Uh, yeah, I got to really try that on. Um, yeah, I can't believe you had benefactors. I mean, I just think of that as like there's this movie called Impromptu that uh, I really have this fondness for, for whatever reason, for the time I saw it in my life. But it's it's a lot of just great, you know, it's the it's Mandy Patinkin and Emma Thompson and mm-hmm. just a bunch of people like that. Like I think Alfred Molina is probably in it, but 
but it takes place in, you know, whatever it is like the 18th, 17th century France, something like, I mean, it's, mm. I, I'm embarrassed that I don't know immediately know, but it's mm. George Sand and Chopin and mm-hmm. Debussy and mm-hmm. all these people mm-hmm. who sort of, you know, would go out to someone's country mm-hmm. mansion, mm-hmm. these benefactors who were like, here, here, we have 11 mm-hmm. rooms, please let's, yeah, let's yeah, get yeah, everyone yeah, together. Yeah, and yeah. Delacroix and the, and every, and then, and then they just get together and, and f- fuck and fight with each mm-hmm. other. And mm. then just shit all over the benefactors. Like Emma mm. Thompson plays this clueless sort of mm. let's run out and play, you know. <laughs> and they're just like, ugh, the bourgeoisie, fuck them. Can you mm. please pass me that wine? Like this whole idea of sort of mooching off the rich as as that 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 time where it's like, you know, the 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 most you can hope for as a rich person in the country is to have is to let these artists come they'll deign to create mm. on your property mm. so whenever i hear that and, and i'm not saying that those are the people who gave you the desk at mm. all mm. but it just immediately mm. conjured this idea of like god remember mm. remember when you know an artist mm. was sort of uh, valued in yeah, that someone way you wanted and, to help well, yeah. th- this was a really fascinating older couple uh, the man has since passed away but they were very connected to writers and artists the woman was a writer and uh the gentleman he had he had put up the some of the original money for the new york review of books but he'd also been the editor of the nation he also had run cbs news and interviewed jfk in the white house and had been a, a lifelong childhood friend of the poet robert lowell and so they were very much in the arts and uh and i had met them when i was in college and yeah they and you know and i would do things like bartend for them at little cocktail parties or but they were very kind to me and i'm still in touch with the woman and then uh her son and the man's stepson is a brilliant uh, fellow named tom malinowski and he's running for uh congress uh in new jersey to flip a uh you know a, a red district blue and so I, I've been trying to help with the campaign, which is kind of great because it's like his parents were so good to me. And and so I, I would do anything for them in a way to help, do something for them is to and to help what's going on in the country is to help him. So anyone who hears this, he he was a secretary of state for human rights uh, under Obama, ran the Human Rights Watch in D.C. And anyway, he's running in New Jersey, Tom Malinowski. So my whole thing, and I don't want to, you know, whatever people's politics, but I'll say it, I'm I'm a Democrat or a liberal or progressive. And but and for those of you out there who are along those lines, I think the one thing to do is to find people running for Congress and support them this November to hope that our systems could hold on. And if we can get uh, one of the branches of government to put a check on, you know, this uh, kleptocrat con man, dark force that, uh, you know, who is very good at cheating. I'll give him credit for that. Very good at cheating his whole life. And when he said things were rigged, you know, he knew they were rigged in his favor, (laughs) but in probably in ways perceived everything he does when he calls someone crooked, it's because he's crooked. When he says Germany is reliant on Russia, it's because he's reliant on Russia. When he says the Russians are going to help the Democrats, it's because they're helping him. He just flips everything. It's It can be cunning. It could also be you know psychologically revealing. Anyway, I don't mean to go there, but support Tom Malinowski. And then here in California, Katie Hill. And then um, and then I uh, there's another person, um, blanking on her name, who's uh, 
running in Florida, uh, Soderbergh. Mm -hmm. So, you know, finding these uh, congressional races where Democrats can retake the majority is great. But anyway, it all began with that family helping me years and years ago. That's so great. I love that. Okay. Uh, I am going to get into this MASH game. Mm -hmm. Uh, I am going to first ask you for three... We'll do... This is sort of a variation on the theme of the vacation home, but I'm going to... um, I'm going to get perhaps obnoxiously specific with you and say that this is three places where it's the sort of... uh, locational manifestation of that room with a desk in it, which is these are writing retreat places. So it's a place that you can go anywhere in the world three that uh, specifically would inspire you uh, when writing. Okay. I just have a question. What's a mash game? Oh, mash is okay. So that's the game that we're playing. Sorry. I forgot to really break it down for you. I thought the more I explained it, the less sense it would make. Suffice it to say, this is a child's game. This Mm. stands for mansion, apartment, shack, or house. Uh Uh, As a young person, Uh I and many others would um, sort of play this. It's sort of a wheel Mm. of fortune type of scenario where I get all these different answers from you. And then at the end, by a process of elimination in an eeny, meeny, miny, mo type way, Mm. I will say, okay, you got this. You live here. You ended up with this. And this is sort of fantasy. It's a sort of like best dream come true situation. Okay. So, yeah, so I'm starting with three writing retreat locations. Writing retreat locations that I would love to go to? That you, yeah, we're going to give you, it's on, you have, you have, you sort of, we're going to create in this alternate universe the possibility of okay. any, any, but not one necessarily of three. places I've been. Don't have to be anywhere you've been. But, and this will be different than like, this is a place I wouldn't want to go write. I would just want to go be among the people or eat delicious mm-hmm. food or whatever. Mm-hmm. This is specific to sort of like R- bringing that part out. Right. Yeah. Well, I would. I would like to be in a motel room, a fairly anonymous motel room that doesn't have bad odors, mm-hmm. and um, with a with a desk, and doesn't even have to have a view out the window too much. For some reason, maybe I've never been to Palm Springs, but I suddenly imagined like a motel room, either on a first or second floor. Great. And maybe outside some curtains, there might be a pool where I could take a dip. There's something about an anonymous motel room and just, you know, in this case, a laptop um, where you don't have the clutter of your life where maybe you could write, lie on the bed, write. Uh, another one would be, I've gone, I at one time in my life, I used to go a lot to this artist colony called Yado. Mm-hmm. In fact, I set a whole novel there. A simulacrum of Yado, and I went to another one called McDowell. But I never went to one of these places. There are these kind of writing retreats in Italy uh, that I would hear about that you could apply for, and and you're often fed like beautiful meals, maybe in the morning and evening, and then during the day, probably you get a lunch that you could take to your room so you don't break up the day because lunch is terrible for a writer. But so I'd like to be in one of these beautiful villas in right. Italy with again a similar feeling of the motel room an anonymous room where i don't um you know all the little kipple from my life is not distracting me great and then the third one would be um well i mean i guess i would like to write there i i in general love to be near the ocean and to swim in the ocean and to hear the ocean and to be next to big nature like that, just big nature and not see 
all man's buildings and roads and all the things we create and just see this big nature and forget for a little while maybe how hurting the ocean is too with all the things pouring out from us yeah. in terms of plastic and waste and but so somewhere near the ocean okay maybe again like a sort of cheap hotel up the coast that you know hasn't been totally overrun you know Great. Or, or a cute little spot i i've i've been lucky to there's a very last beach in malibu it's called county line and some a, a hollywood company a very fortunate experience like gave me a house there like three summers ago for five weeks nice. and i've gone back to that beach i got friendly with the realtor and there are these smaller little kind of well there's this one little studio but it's a very desolate beach there's just a few houses there and i i just love being there i've never tried to write while there i just okay. i just like looking at the water well, well but, okay so we and then we've got the sort of motel or studio but, the but ocean to be near yeah. the ocean and right near the ocean yeah. would be cool okay great okay next category let's do three I, I mean, I'm I, I'm very curious about your answer. So let's do three uh, places and time uh, and times that you would like to visit if you were sort of in a safety bubble. So you can you can you're witnessing, you're not participating, and you're not in any danger from any period of time, future, past, anything, dinosaurs, whatever. Whoa. Uh, three places that you can sort of hover in. Let's say you can spend like half a day just kind of watching. Mm. Well. Okay, I guess, you know, blink response for whatever reason, mm -hmm. especially since you... I, having grown up outside of New York, uh, having spent so much time there, I, I would love to see what that island looked like before it had been covered over. And so either to go back when it was just Native American tribes mm -hmm. running over this island, and Manhattan, I believe was a, a Native American word for island of hills hmm. um, or to be there like in you know mid 18th century you, you know where it was starting to bustle but still when you went to Brooklyn it was farms yes so it would be really beautiful to see what nature had been Manhattan mm. and Brooklyn so either the you know 16th century and kind of um you, you know or or who wrote those books in the 19th century they made a movie with daniel day lewis mm -hmm. and it was defoe gangs of new york yeah uh, oh, no, not gangs the, of new york the, the one where he ran around with the rifle so maybe it's the 1700s okay uh michael mann made the film and it was based on uh, a novel which i read um uh, but th this was it, it was it was before the revolution, okay. I think, and the French and the English were all vying for control. But anyway, oh God, I'm okay. sorry, I'm blanking. But so, but yeah, so some New York sometime in the past where I could see the trees and the mm -hmm. streams and, you know, Times Square, I think, was where all the streams came together. And that's oh, why wow. Times Square became the center. Oh my gosh. Because a lot that's of body, you know, because water blowing. always brings... Yeah, it brings so along those same lines. I would also love to see Los Angeles. I think 
I would, I guess I would like, I wouldn't, I think because of being a Raymond Chandler fan, be interesting to see like 30s Los Angeles when, you know, before the freeways and, and when some of these beautiful houses, it must have just been a mix of like how neighborhoods and then dirt roads and, you know, and then Hollywood Boulevard. So I couldn't agree more. I did. Have you seen Los Angeles plays itself? Yes. That's, yeah. I mean, there's, you get those sort of snippets where you see these sort of, you know, black and whites where you're, you can't, it's so hard to even put it in a context. Mm. The downtown mm. stuff is a little bit easier because they have the like funicular or whatever that mm. is that mm. we still mm. have. Mm. But yeah, when you just see the sort of like, well, this is what this neighborhood was like. And, you know, next to that was an orchard. It's fascinating. Yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah, no, I, I really, yeah, I, I, when I first moved here four years ago, I saw that film because also I was starting my show here and really wanted to film Los Angeles as best I could. So, yeah, so Los Angeles maybe of, of the 30s, yeah. pre the freeway system. Now, I happen to admire the freeways because uh, when you ri- drive on them late at night, it's kind of like the Great Wall of China. Like, mm. there are these things circling this massive yeah. desert. But yeah. they just, you know, but the population exploded and they, they're not, it wasn't enough. Um, I'm and not that, being rude, by the way. I really am just trying to find the William Defoe, Daniel Day-Lewis movie. Cause I would, Daniel, I think. Okay, well, Gangs of New York is what came up, but that uh, doesn't. No, um, but us. do Michael Mann, Daniel Day-Lewis. Okay. And, uh, and I saw it on TV the other night, uh, channel surfing. It was a great film. And uh, it's a classic nature, man and nature. And what the hell is it? Stop showing us Gangs of New York. Well, go, go to Daniel Day-Lewis's like, Wikipedia. Yeah. And would have, I think it would have been late 80s, early go. 90s. There we go. Well, that's right, Isabella Johnny. I don't know if that's how you say it. Uh, uh, and then, wonderful. Filmography, and, great, 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 great. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, my beautiful Andre. Oh, hope room with a view. <laughs> Bearable I feeling them. My left foot, Last of the Mohicans. Last of the Mohicans. You were talking about Last of the Mohicans. Yeah. Like, I will find you. Yeah. I forgot that that takes yeah. place there. I'm oh my, sorry you to mentioned the Mohican tribe films, that I Suddenly forgot. it was just like, oh my God, he's been in so many movies. Oh my God, movies. he's had an astonishing career. I mean, like, just like, you know, career. the unbearable lightness of being yeah. my left foot. Yeah. Um, you know, A Room with a View. It's The crazy. Last of the Mohicans. Lincoln. Hi. You played, uh, yeah. I mean, shoot. I mean, we know he's great, but just suddenly you're reading oh, those. Yeah. I'm like, those were all stellar, yeah. jewel-like films. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's done all right. Okay, so LA and, in the and, 30s. And then your last one, because you kind of put it in my mind, and I, I did recently see, again, I, I don't stream TV, I don't watch any TV shows, but I channel surf. Mm-hmm. So I had uh, caught a glimpse of, like, I think the original Jurassic Park. So I think, yeah, along those lines of wanting to see Manhattan, what it was like, when you fly over the desert here and... I would love to see what the world looked like before the oceans receded, mm-hmm. but be on land. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. But just like, yeah, or, or be able to go underwater and see like that the Grand Canyon was oh, this underwater yeah. canyon, or, or yeah. So to see that world, the, I guess the, I can just put primordial. Yeah, but that. but if there were animals running around so i could walk on the land and if the air was breathable for humans back then so it'd be really neat to see that nature 
Um, yeah, and, and I would love just to go to every era, you know, now that you've given me this ability to time travel. Well, that's that's sort of the idea of the game is it kind mm. of cracks open your imagination. And mm. I realize now that I have to get on a call in seven minutes. So okay. we're doing great we're, on time and right. now I've suddenly crunched us. But um, okay. the next one, this is a this is a, a, a sort of traditional MASH favorite that existed um, when playing this as a child too. But this is an alternate universe romantic partner. It could be a, a character from a book. Three, could be a character from a book, could be uh, an actor or actress from X era, any age, anything like that, um, that sort of becomes this alternate universe romantic adventure. Oh, so uh, someone from another time that's my partner? Or yeah, or, or someone current. I mean, it's just whatever whatever feels fun. Yeah. Well, I guess, again, the blink response, you know, when you play the game of the psychiatrist, I said refrigerator, you say yeah. spoiled milk, whatever. Um, so I guess I, I did flash, since you said character out of fiction or film, I flashed to Julie Christie and Dr. Zhivago. Great. No, I could be Omar Sharif in that bus seeing yep. her oh god i could almost cry just thinking of that scene i tried to recreate it in blunt talk with patrick stewart looking out a bus window so julie christie and that um god would be another uh now i'm aware of the seven minutes and some i'm i'm, I'm freezing who, yeah who, don't who, who would be who would be a wonderful don't freeze beautiful person to be with i'm gonna see if i can um, postpone what you think um, I guess, I don't know why, I guess I'd like to somehow be Sylvia Plath's lover and companion and take care of her so good that she doesn't commit suicide and we could really enjoy seeing the world together and drinking and smoking pot. You're saving Sylvia Plath. Um, Ugh, Saving Sylvia Plath sounds like a terrible 80s movie, or like a <laughs> 90s movie. I know, but just somehow go back in time and like enter her life and and we and we just are so comfortable with each other. Great. And we're just, great. it's a beautiful friendship. Yeah. And then she this doesn't is, have to die. This is the purpose of this game. It's fantastic. Yeah. Great answer. And, um, and then, I don't know, I, the third one... I, I don't know. I can't. I, I, the third I, one is always. Uh, uh, I, I know. I just. I'm, I'm aware of the time. But no, I, don't I, I, but I, I think. I think. Okay. But I'm also thinking that like it maybe it's too. So it's can't. It can't be from my life though. Or, no, it can't be. Yeah, but I don't. I don't want to say these things out loud. <laughs> Understood. Um, so, try, who would be from fiction or films? Oh, I guess I'll go with a silly one. I go. For, I'll go with a high school one. Perfect. And it's rather revealing. <laughs> so uh, Lonnie Anderson from WKRP in Amazing. Cincinnati. I think I'm I had, so glad we have. I, I think I had like that represented I think here. I, I think I had a poster of her, oh, and I would love for her to hold me <laughs> to, to her b- bosom. <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> and then I her would be, ample bosom. And then I would become. Uh, <laughs> I would go from infant to virile man, <laughs> but I would start off as, <laughs> um, That's beautiful. you know, That's beautiful. you know, some primordial version of myself oh. and she would hold me and then I would rise up like a gladiator and, That's right. and please her. That's right. 
<laughs> I'm very glad that you tapped into that teenage moment. That's fantastic. Uh, okay, next one is uh, three skills that uh, w- you would like to wake up with tomorrow, having sort of suddenly you're an expert at something you didn't have to practice at. <clears throat> um, well, I've been doing martial arts. It'd be really cool to... Well, I, I have a fantasy of being able to fly and levitate and... And then I imagine, though, that, you know, once I flew that, you know, people would want to shoot me down for being an other or scary. And so then I would imagine that I could perceive the bullets coming at me right away or or I, I, I could create this air around me so that people, even that they were scared by this human who could fly. So I would love to be able to fly so that I could fly to Washington and somehow channel the wisdom of the world and help create great change. Um, This is an old fantasy. It would be great to wake up and be able to just be such a great basketball player that I could be in the NBA at age 54. And I think I'm five, 10 and a half and I could just shoot. I mean, I was once a great uh, street basketball player, but then I got this condition in my hands and I can't quite, I have something called Dupertrin's contracture if anyone wanted to look it up, not that they should. <clears throat> so basketball. And then also it'd be, I'd love to be like playing with <clears throat> Roger Federer and Nadal and Djokovic. I'd, I'd like to be in like the top four in tennis. I'd also, just to throw in a fourth, I'd like to wake up with some mechanical skills. My uh, fire... Uh, things last night mm-hmm. went off. They always go off at 3 a.m., right? They always go off and, at 3 a.m. And, you know, I got on a, a, a bench in my house. I got on a stepladder. I managed to get the battery out somehow. I'd, but I don't know that I put the batteries in, so they've been chirping all night. Somehow yeah. I slept. You know, I, they started at 2.45. I put a pillow over my head, <laughs> oh, and it's no. still chirping now. Yeah. Um, so I'd love to wake up with some mechanical skills. Okay. I, I'm very incapable that way. I can sometimes struggle opening a window. It'd be great to be able to fix things. This is good. This is an unprecedented fourth uh, mm. option for the category. Mm. It's going to throw all mm. the math off. I'm very excited about it. Mm. Uh, okay, next one, uh, uh, one I always have to throw in, three foods that um, perhaps are bad for you in some way in excess in this reality, but you can have uh, in perpetuity, snap of your fingers, no physical ramifications. Mm-hmm. But this can also be a opportunity to use like a food that you can't have because you had it one place in this thing and you go, oh, I wish I could, that one pizza or that mm-hmm. that that soup I had in Thailand mm-hmm. that you could have, you know, just in front of you whenever you wanted. Yeah, well, that same sensation. Well, I was in Vienna, Austria. I was 20. It was, I feel like it was cold. It will have been the fall, but it was, yeah, it must have been the fall. It was very cold. I was hungover. I was 20. And I bought some kind of hot dog on the street from some vendor, but it was like, you know, probably Viennese, like, wiener of some kind. And it was the tastiest hot dog I've ever had in my life. I've never forgotten it. And I'm not a big hot dog eater. Um, Recently, this uh, very sweet friend of mine, uh, she gets those Marcolna almonds Mm -hmm. and makes her own truffle salt or something and covers them in... And they're so Mm. decadent. 
you feel like you're eating some kind of nut version of caviar. So yep. I really like those. Great. Um, and, um, oh, and just, I guess since I said caviar, there was a time when I really loved the way like fish eggs kind of, you know, popped in my mouth. So I guess if I could, like have lots of tasty fish eggs and wasn't somehow hurting the fish Great. or something. Yep. Like, Perfect. Yeah. Uh, okay. Next category. Let's do three. Um, let's do three films that you can just walk into and you're not a character in the film. You're just in that world. You're just mm-hmm. experiencing mm-hmm. it for whatever mm-hmm. that means to you. Mm-hmm. Engaging with the characters. But again, you don't have to replay the plot or be a character. Uh huh. <clears throat> let's see oh gosh so i'm in the world of these particular movies again all the ones that are popping to mind are the ones we've mentioned um that's okay uh trying to think what would be fun what would be really fun um oh god i don't know i guess i suddenly <laughs> this is really bad but i don't know why but i, I get, i'm just trying to go with my mind I was trying to think of Ocean Beach, and but then I suddenly hit Ch- Cheech and Chong. Uh-huh. So it would be fun to get stoned with them Great. and drive around Nothing in, a, in a van and smoke pouring out of that van. Great. Oh, oh I guess in along the lines of beach, I, I, I think I'd like to be walking with Robert Redford and Barbara Streisand on the beach the way we were. Great. I'd like to weep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I don't know. I maybe because it was a teenage year thing and talking about being special. Because I, I like, I like, I haven't cried in, at a movie in a long time. I remember crying at Doctor Shivago. Remember crying at the Sound of Music. I could at different times in my life. I I could, I could go for the Sound of Music. But because you had the teenage years, I remember I was a teenager and we were in nineteen eighty. And it was Ordinary People, directed by Robert Redford, sure. Timothy Hutton. Mm-hmm. And I went to see the movie with my mom and my Judd great... Judd Hirsch, yeah. Judd great, Hirsch great, is the psychiatrist. Yeah, great. And, and I think I began crying during the movie. And I wanted my mom to see, like, I'm like that boy. Because I think I was starting to have some suicidal ideation in high school. And... but she didn't know and in high school you know i used to write on the side of my notebook all the time help i need somebody help and then i'd look around and then i would cross it out i think i wrote that in the margins of my notebook from like sophomore junior and senior year so i think not i don't know yeah so but then ordinary people the kid is doing better by the end but then that made me flash to another movie, and now I've lost it that I would like to go into. Well, I ended up with Cheech and Chong the way we were in Ordinary People, which I think is kind of a great cross-section. Okay. So we'll, we'll, keep, we'll leave it at that. Uh, okay, two more categories. The next category is uh, the this in, in your house as it exists now, um, mm. there is an extra secret room that is not bound by the limitations of physics. So it could mm-hmm. be a doorway in onto a beach, mm-hmm. uh, or it could be, you know, a mm-hmm. sewing room, mm-hmm. or, you know, anything like that. It's just this is your secret room mm-hmm. in your house. Mm-hmm. Three. So three Different secret Different types rooms? of rooms, Oh, yeah. where that could go anywhere. Mm-hmm. All right, well, you did lead me. I would love to be able to, because I live on the east side of L.A., and I want to be at the ocean more. Yeah. But all the driving, and I've thought of getting a camper, 
of some sort. I saw a camper for sale for $10,000 so I could go to the beach, be able to have a shower and a bathroom and all mm-hmm. that. So I would love a portal right to the beach, right. a nice empty beach. So thank you. And it doesn't that. have to be a portal. You know, it could also just be like a, a, a study like Sherlock. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like you could sort of have a room that is just completely... Uh, antithetical to the rest of the house but that has this sort of like there's some part of me that wants to have like a weird you know library that has taxidermy and stuff even Mm -hmm. though that's Mm -hmm. not my jam yeah um okay Uh, yeah so portal to the beach i think another one be fun to go into a room which um was maybe like a good um steakhouse yeah, you know, and but where but where the steak is really good, but yeah. it's okay to eat yes. animals. Perfect. And and you could have a drink, and there's like, yeah, it would be good. Yeah, either like a, a good old fashioned steakhouse or Peter Luger's in Brooklyn. But yeah, steakhouse where Great. where I could take. Yeah, like I had this girlfriend. She loved going to Peter Luger's, and I so enjoyed seeing her pleasure in that food. So, yeah, like where I could take a companion for a beautiful meal. Great. And then another room would be, um, I guess, uh, yeah, it would be a room where I suddenly the ceiling went away and I could fly like a bird. And again, channel surfing, I saw um, Avatar and I did like those scenes where those those floating islands in the sky. So it'd be cool to um, step out into a thing and be able to fly and pluck delicious fruits off of branches and fly with other creatures. And then, but then, then there is water that you could dive into, mm-hmm. like like a pelican. Yeah. And then, and then ride a wave and then back up into the sky. So it's a little bit like, well, that other room was a portal basically to Malibu to yes. make it California. This is more, this is more fantastical of swimming and yeah. flying. Great. Great. Okay. Final category is, uh, you made me think about it with this sort of steakhouse reference, mm-hmm. but this is, um, this is three people who are no longer alive. So this can never happen mm-hmm. in our reality uh, that you uh, would sit, you find yourself sitting next to at a bar having a drink. And so you have a conversation that can only last a couple of drinks. So maybe it's an hour, mm-hmm. um, a, a conversation with, with someone uh, who is no longer alive. So it could be someone mm-hmm. famous, could be a family member, mm-hmm. a friend, anything. Three. Yeah, I would love to see my great aunt again. Uh, she died when she was 101, and I was with her for six days. I did a vigil. I didn't. I thought she was wasn't going to make it, and and I flew from L.A. I didn't even pack a bag to make it in time. And I told them to tell her, tell her Jonathan is coming. I had been her main caretaker when she was in Queens, and I was in Brooklyn for about 20 years. And anyway, and then I came out here to L.A. to start this job four years ago. And I think she knew because I had left and then my parents moved out here, but we couldn't have moved her from this nursing home. She was too frail and she was getting farther and farther from reality. But she she knew that we had gone. And so she I think she just failed. And the nursing home called me at like eight o'clock in the morning and was able to get on like 11 a.m. flight, got to New Jersey and they, you know, they didn't think she was going to make it through the day. And then she ended up hanging on for like six days. And I had never been with someone as they passed. And it was incredible. But I would love 
to see her again and just tell her I loved her again one more time. Mm. And then my childhood best friend, um, he died when he was 39 and I hadn't seen him in, well, our friendship sort of ended when we were 17. I guess he, 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 well, it's all complicated, but I, there was a great love between us, but I never, I saw him, I think I saw him one more time when we were 24, you know, and we, and it was a good talk and, uh, but he died when he was 39 and I'd love to see him again. And, um, and then the third one, again, oh, I have these two friends actually. I named a character in my novel, Wake Up Sir, after them. It was uh, Alan Jolis and Blair Clark. And so I named the character in my book, uh, Alan Blair. And, um, but Blair was the benefactor and he was huge in politics. He would be so disturbed by what was going on. He would have been disturbed by George W. being given the 2000 election. I mean, twice the will of the people and the, you know, um, there's a, a book called the wisdom of crowds that the crowd will ultimately make the right choice by New Yorker writer, James Surowiecki. And twice now in the last, you know, 2000, 2016, the will of the people, the majority was ignored and they had made the right choice. Well, well so I'd, I guess I'd, I'd like to see Blair, but he'd be so upset by Trump being president. <laughs> so, um, uh, yeah, I mean, um, I don't know. I guess suddenly it would, well, Kerouac, he was such a childhood idol um, I don't know, Thurman Munson, the catcher for the Yankees, uh, Steve McQueen. Look at all these people who oh, are bubbling oh, to the surface. Well, How are you I just, I just, one? I think like, I, th- I feel I would want these people to be able to come back to life and not die young. I know, there's, it's a bittersweet, yeah, it's bittersweet yeah, because yeah, I don't think Like JFK or Marilyn Monroe or James Dean um, or that young actor. Anton Yelchin. Mm-hmm. Um, oh gosh, I don't know. I know. Why did I end with something so? Kind of <laughs> I want them all to come back, but sweet. be able to stick around. Um, uh, oh, Anthony Bourdain now. Oh, David. So, David. I've really David Bowie. Uh, this is so depressing. <laughs> um, uh, let's. Oh, what about uh, it, it should be someone that you feel left you they led a, a full robust life so mm-hmm. it's less about like oh god i only get them for a couple of moments like mm-hmm. it's it's more about the mm-hmm. sort of like you 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 had your your place mm-hmm. in time mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. okay well you know I, I, I would, okay i would out. i would like it um like um Maybe Winston Churchill. There you go. Like, and then he go. could give counsel on what we should do. There you go. God, I really brought us down. Okay, uh, this is just um, give me a number between one and nine. Eight. Okay, uh, I am going to pause this. Um, I'm going to do my quick calculations. I'm going to mm-hmm. come back with your 100% guaranteed fictitious smash future, and then that, my friend, will be the end of the podcast. That will be begin the podcast? That will be the end. Oh, my God. (laughs) By the way, I play the entire podcast backwards. People really have to uh, work hard to enjoy it. Uh, I'll be back in moments to the listener. It will seem as if no time has passed. Uh, I'm I'm 
complete. Oh, wait. I didn't even do it. I didn't even do it. I was so excited about the dogs. Hold on. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Jonathan is playing with the dogs, which is to say she's just, just coming say, at you. I say yes to dogs. I'm like, yes. <laughs> yes. It's sort of like the end of you, Ulysses. It's just like one big yes. I, I see you. I'm mm. acknowledging you. Yeah. <laughs> I get so excited with my dog. I'm like, oh, His name what, is what kind of dog is he? I forget. You told um, me, but he's he's well, he's not as big as as these wonderful dogs, but he's like half Chihuahua and probably half Jack Russell Terrier. Yeah, so that's still about, a sturdy he, dog. Yeah, he's he's about twenty two pounds now mm-hmm. and uh and so he yeah like we were able to wrestle and but he's also very much a lap dog sits in my lap we're very close he i know, love that you that you that he entered your life oh yeah it's really what made you yeah. decide to get him um i, I was at that are we recording or uh-huh. oh um i was at that club in Frogtown, LA, mm-hmm. Zebulon, and I was a little tipsy and I went to the bathroom and, you know, we're also addicted to our phone. So I think I was like looking at my phone as I urinated and a friend of mine, I hope that's not gross, but anyway, a friend of mine texted me a picture of the dog that he needed fostering for a week and she thought of me. Somehow she got on, you know, someone sent it to her. I thought, you know what? You're supposed to say yes to things in life. You, you know, or these times when you say yes. So, yeah. so I said, I was like, yes, I can foster a dog for a week. I, I didn't know if I was able to even take care of a dog for a week, but I thought I could. And then within like 36 hours, I was just like, oh, I have to keep him. Oh, and, that's great. That sounds yeah. like it was really meant to be. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know that that's not yours, but oh, no, but that is yours. Maybe it's not. Can't they share? Their- well, oh no, no, no! They both they both got these chews, and I think mm. uh, she made quick work of hers. And mm. for some reason, Scott just kind of abandoned his. But now she mm. doesn't want it either. But she just wants it in here, and is keeping mm. it close and mm-hmm. keeping a close eye on it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you have ended up with. Uh, I guess I never really figured out how I was going to incorporate the mash part of it, which is mansion, apartment, shack, or house. But uh, let's say uh, you have, we definitely ended up with an apartment, but we're going to kind of morph that into the Palm Springs motel room that mm-hmm. you have uh, mm-hmm. whenever you need it, uh, if you would like to go uh, on a little writing retreat there. And by the way, I do think that your estimation of your uh, enjoyment of Palm Springs is accurate. You should mm-hmm. go because I think you would really like it. Uh, you also have the ability to, spend at least half a day uh, experiencing Los Angeles of the 1930s, mm-hmm. uh, seeing it firsthand. You are a masterful tennis player. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. Yay. You, listen, If whenever you just need to get deeply in touch with your feelings and think about uh, your teenage self writing those words on the side of your notebook, mm. uh, rest assured you can dip into the world of ordinary people mm-hmm. whenever your heart desires. Mm. You also have a fantastic steakhouse, mm-hmm. extra <laughs> secret room mm-hmm. in your home. 
Uh, I can, I, I don't listen. I don't know if this is a, the, the place where I can sort of see maybe as you're waiting to get your food, somebody, mm-hmm. uh, shuffles over a little dish of Marcona almonds, mm-hmm. but, mm-hmm. uh, that would be maybe an appetizer you could experience mm-hmm. in that room. Uh, and you can share that, uh, maybe there's a, you sidle up to the bar in your very own home in your very own steakhouse and have that, uh, couple of drinks with your great aunt. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you can treat your romantic partner to a fantastic meal uh, as you rest your head on her ample bosom <laughs> and then become a virile man because, yes, indeed, you ended up with Lonnie Anderson. <laughs> Not Julie Christie or Sylvia Plath. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to do Lonnie Anderson. <laughs> You but, got Lonnie Anderson. Yeah, no, that's that's I think it's, yeah. that's this is a, it's an appropriate uh, appropriate. How, use how of did the, the, game. the computer break all that down? Is it like you picked eight, so I go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and I just keep crossing them off until each category has one left, and then hmm. that's the one that I circle, and that's the one that you end up with. Oh, so okay. that is I, how it's very scientific. I, I, I don't necessarily understand that, but I I believe in this sort of however you, you did in the it. System? Yeah. Believe in my system. Yeah. It really works. Uh, Jonathan, thank you so much for doing the podcast. This has been such a pleasure and a joy. Thank you. Uh, I hope people got a kick out of what our casual conversation. I think. <laughs> <laughs> what a formal summation of what just occurred. And in closing, I guess my closing argument would be, Your Honor, if I could, uh, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, if you didn't enjoy this casual conversation, I don't know what's wrong with you. So please vote not guilty. Uh, well, I just have never listened to a podcast, so I don't know what the experience well, would be. Well, mine is one of the best. And <laughs> I, now you've been a part of yeah. it. Uh, Thank you for having me. Oh, no, I forgot one very important last thing that uh, probably isn't going to go over very well. I forgot that I spring spontaneously upon my male guests uh, the insistence that they sing whatever they can remember of a snippet of Don Henley's song, Boys of Summer. I don't know if you know it at all. Um, I forgot to warn you about this thing that I pretend uh, not to warn people about. I know the title. Mm -hmm. I know Don Henley because I, I watched that eagles documentary mm-hmm, which i thought mm-hmm. was amazing and i didn't realize like how many eagles songs i knew oh yeah and what yeah. a kind of cool band they were they yeah. and how everyone they knew and the way they wrote their lyrics and then that other guy died recently yeah um but i know there's this one don henley song forgiveness it's about forgiveness that's as good as I yep. could do. nope that that'll do <laughs> it was that that'll boys do. of summer no. Uh, no it's totally different oh. boys of summer is like i can see you your brown skin shining in the sun does this sound familiar no you got your hair thrown back and your sunglasses on baby i can tell you my love for you will still be strong after the boys of summer have gone you don't know that song i do now okay good yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I enjoyed it. forgiveness as yeah. well. Uh, thank you so much for doing the podcast, Jonathan. And uh, guys, I will talk to you next time. Do you want me to do my Harry call sound? With that Please, that would be mic? great. You know it? No. You don't know it? I don't think so. It might upset the dogs. Uh, I don't know if it will. He's, first of all, mostly deaf. Okay. She, it's I don't know really what It's really loud. Her. I'll hold the mic away. Okay. But this is a sound my friends and I... I I've, it's shtick I've done for years. I, I, uh, I kind of got into Hollywood in a sense because uh, David Letterman... Uh, began to have me on in 2003 as an eccentric 
And I did this sound at the end of my appearances there. I was on a few times, and I've done it for years. And anyway, so here's a hairy call. It's a sound my friends and I would make on the playground when being attacked by more normal children. Okay. <coughs> She was interested. He, I'm not sure if he got anything. He might have felt a vibration in the air. (laughs) Uh, That was exciting for me because I had no idea what to expect. And it did not let me down. All right. Uh, Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Jonathan. And goodbye. Goodbye. As always, the JV Club theme song is Back Before We Were Brittle by The Amazing Say Hi. Now leaving Nerdist.com.